Well, I am going to speak about uh, Corey Tenboom, but I do want to begin by just letting you know, I, I grew up in New Brunswick, born and raised. My dad still lives in the house he was born in, and both my mom and dad are still alive. Uh, grew up in the country. One of the things that would happen in the summertime as a kid that I really enjoyed and something that my parents encouraged is uh, to our little community center came a vehicle called the Bookmobile. And so if you can imagine a small bus uh, that would come, it wasn't painted orange. And inside it had been refitted and with shelves and in that, on those shelves were a lot of books. And so it was like a traveling library that would come to our rural community. And so uh, what began for me with that experience is a love for books. So as I've gotten older, I've discovered a lot of different sort of books. And one of the type of books I thought I should read would be an autobiography. Surprisingly, I came to have a love-hate relationship with autobiographies. Now, the idea of an autobiography intrigues me. You get an inside look at someone else's life. You can see how they operate. You get a better view, maybe, of the decisions that they've made. You see what their influences have been. You see where they came from. You might discover the secret of their journey. And at the very least, I thought, well, I'll get an interesting story. Well, that's kind of the love part. The, the part that I have discovered that I didn't care for as much is... I don't like autobiographies as much as I thought I would. I discovered that it was a little bit less of a story and more just on names of people that I didn't know. So it could be that I've selected the wrong lives to look at. But I have learned that biographies might be what more I'm looking for. And when someone else tells the story of a person's life, they make it more of a story. And so I haven't abandoned the whole idea of autobiographies or biographies. The other thing that you need to know about me is that uh, I love to watch movies. Um, for uh, uh, about six years, family and I, we lived in Texas. We got to know another couple and neither my wife and I nor this other couple had kids anymore at home. And so just about every Friday night, we went out together for dinner and a movie. Now, eating out in the United States is much cheaper than it is in Canada. And the theater that we went to, you were able to buy a plastic bucket for popcorn for $18. Then if you brought that bucket back, it only cost $3. We bought a bucket every year. And we ate a lot of popcorn. And we saw a lot of movies. And some good, some not so good. But I do like the storytelling format of a movie. Now, do you remember the first movie that you ever saw in a movie theater? I do. Um, and as I look back on this, I'm, I know I'm going to sound like someone that was born in the 1700s. Um, but we didn't go to movies that often when I was a kid. We lived in the country, and so it wasn't possible for us to go very often. But I do remember the first movie that I saw the Aristocats. Um, it, I was in grade three, and this would have been a big event for me. And it must have been a big event, because I still remember it. Now, when I look back on it, nah, maybe not that big of a deal. But going to see a movie was not that common 
when I was growing up. And you have to remember that there were no streaming of shows, there was no internet. And I know that we now regard the internet as a necessity, just so to say that you lived before the time of internet makes you sound like you lived before there was indoor plumbing and flush toilets, but uh, not quite the case. But there were no Blu-ray discs, there were no DVDs, there were no VHS tapes. So going to a movie was a big deal for me. And one of the movies that I went to to see was this one, The Hiding Place. And this is the story of Corey Ten Boom's life. It was filmed in 1974 and released in 1975. The character, the one with the kerchief on her head, is the character of Corey Ten Boom. It's, and her name is Jeanette Clift. She actually received a Golden Globe nomination for Most Promising Newcomer on the basis of this movie. So, The Hiding Place tells the story of Corey Ten Boom and her family during the Second World War. And this is where I first learned about Corey. And when it came time to say um, I wanted to speak on you know, when I looked at the list of possible people we could speak about, this is the one I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell Corey's story. Now, going to the movies back in the 1960s and 70s, depending on where you lived, was not always uh, something that was looked upon favorably. Um, I talked to one person who said, I was allowed to go see Hiding Place, but I wasn't allowed to go see The Sound of Music. So I don't want you to get too hung up on the idea of whether it was right or wrong to go to a movie, but I want you to consider the reason why the movie The Hiding Place was so well regarded and why people would go to the movie theater to see the movie. Well, in my opinion, I think one of the, the main reason why it was so well received was because who produced the movie? It was Worldwide Pictures. And Worldwide Pictures is a ministry of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And in just a couple of weeks, one of our characters that we're going to look at is the life of Billy Graham. So they began making movies in the 50s. It kind of stopped in the 80s, and it was probably due to the rise of the VCR. Do you know in 1975, a VCR cost $1,400? I don't know how much they're selling it for at the Tilly these days, but uh, you could probably buy 8,000 of them for $1,400. This is a picture of the cast um, who you see is the character of Betsy. So she's on the left. On the right, sorry. And um, you see Billy Graham in the center. So there's Betsy, there's the character of her father, Casper. And the real Corey Ten Boom is the older lady uh, at the end. And so here's a picture of Corey uh, with Jeanette. And what I want to do now is we're going to look at the trailer for the movie. And uh, afterwards, I just want to make a comment on the impact uh, of the movie. Let's take a look at this. For a hundred years, the Ten Boom family had lived and worked in this house. It was indeed a happy place. But now, the lights had gone out over Free Holland. Papa, are you going out? I will not dotter around this house and do nothing. I'd rather do anything else. I'd like to close the door and never open it again until this whole hideous thing is over. 
Watched on every side, they were now embarking on an adventure that could cost them their lives. Thank you for the delivery, Mr. Smith. Papa, now! Better not send us anyone wider than me. It was 1944 when the Gestapo came. Place is a film you'll never forget. From the best-selling book comes this true story of innocence and hatred, of light in the midst of darkness. It's not a rest camp. Roll call 4.30 every morning. Seven days a week. Tomorrow, assignment to work details. Those who cannot work, report to sick who could live in such a place driven by a power that would tear out all hope from the soul of man you must believe your God smells that stench from those chimneys and refuses to do anything if only you could know his love and why do you think your God of love sent you here? Was it a secret room or a place <laughs> hidden deep in the heart of man? The hiding place. Well, I understand um, that that preview is not as gripping as some of the previews that we now see uh, today. We're much more accustomed to much more action and portrayals of violence and quick changes. But I, th I think what we should remember is that the impact of the movie during its time would be similar to the movie Schindler's List that probably you've seen. So it had that kind of impact. So you can see the uh, years of Corey's uh, birth and her death. She really looks like a grandmotherly sort, eh? Well, she lived in the Netherlands. Um, in doing some reading on this, I found out that the name of the country is the Kingdom of the Netherlands, and there are provinces. There is North Holland and South Holland, and so it's quite okay uh, to interchange those. And so if you say the Netherlands or you say Holland, you're talking about the same country. Corey's family lived in Harlem. You can see there uh, where the arrow indicates it was on the coast uh, of the Netherlands. So Corey's grandfather uh, in 1837 rents space and opens a watch shop. And later he stops renting and he's able to purchase the property. So there must have been some sort of tradition of passing down of that trade, of that occupation as Corey's father also became a watchmaker. But Corey's grandfather began a prayer group in 1844 
And he asked people to come to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so this interest and love for Israel and the chosen people of God was something that was obviously caught by Corey's father, who expressed a similar disposition for the Jewish people. Corey's brother, Willem, who became a pastor, um, on his way to that uh, becoming a pastor, he works for the Society for Israel, and he writes his PhD thesis on racial anti-Semitism. So there's a generational love for the Jewish people, and when we see their actions, what the family did in World War II, we can see that this perspective was born out of a love for God's chosen people. So here's a picture of Corey's family. Her mom and dad are in the very back row, and the person standing uh, in the lighter colored top next to the father is a family friend. Three aunts also lived in the house, and so you can see them seated in the middle. And then the kids, in order from the boy, is Willem, Corey, Nolly, and Betsy. Uh, Betsy's name was Elizabeth, but she went by Betsy. And Corey is the youngest. She was born on April 15th. It was a good Friday. She was a month premature. She was christened in the Dutch Reformed Church when she was a few months old. As I mentioned, she is the youngest. So when we think about Corey's life, we have to remember that Corey was 22 when World War I began. Now, in World War I, the, the Netherlands had an official policy of neutrality, and they maintained that throughout the war. And the country was impacted by war, but more so because of the countries around them were engaged in conflict. And in the story of her life, we don't get too much information on the impact of World War I in Corey's life. In 1924, Corey becomes Holland's first woman licensed watchmaker. And in 1937, and if you read the book, The Hiding Place, 1937 is the 100th anniversary of the watch shop. And this is where the story opens in the book. So in 1939, as we know, World War II begins. And once again, the position by the Netherlands is neutrality. But this time, the borders of the country are breached by Germany. And in 1940, Germany invades Holland. And that occupation lasts five years until the end of the war. One of the experiences that Corey has in her life uh, during the beginning of the war is she has a, uh, begins a friendship with a gentleman who in the book, um, they give his name, but it's not his real name. I think just to protect his identity. Um, they have a close friendship. They spend time together. But then her heart is broken because this guy's mom feels that Corey is not an appropriate status of person to marry. And so she's not good enough for her son to marry, and so he breaks things off and he marries someone else. Corey never marries, neither does her older sister. The middle two children marry. And both Corey and Betsy live with their father. Corey works in the watch shop and Betsy cares for the home and takes care for the three families. So as the occupation continues, Corey asks her brother Willem to find a safe house for two Jewish friends who come to them. Um, and as time went on, the watch shop became a safe haven for Jewish people. 
And it became a place of transition. So if they were running from authorities, they could come to the watch shop. They could spend some time there and then move on to a safer location, to a safe house. So Cory becomes part of the Dutch underground. There are some Jewish people who spend a very short time, maybe just a matter of hours there, but there are some people who spend uh, much longer and end up living with family. This is an actual picture of some of the people that were in the Ten Boom house. And so here you see on the one side, Corey and her father. There's also some Jewish guests and some Dutch underground workers. This is a picture of people uh, in the house practicing to get into the secret room, the hiding place. The room was built in Corey's bedroom. And you can see on the right-hand side uh, the bed and the entrance to the room was in the bottom panel of the closet. And I don't know if you caught what the lady said as they were practicing um, in, in the movie trailer. She says, I hope God doesn't send us anybody wider than me uh, to get in and out of that space. So the wall was made of brick in Corey's house so that if you tapped on the wall, you would hear solid, something solid, and it wouldn't sound hollow. And in the, in the book, they recount how it was a famous Jewish architect who ended up designing that, uh, that hiding place. And when they were bringing bricks into the house, of course, you can't show that you're doing anything. And so the bricks just came in people's pockets, just a few at a time. In 1944, a Dutch man comes to Corey and says his wife has been arrested, and his wife is a Jew. But the man says there's a policeman who will accept a bribe for her release. The husband has no money, and so he asks Corey, would she be able to get his wife uh, out of prison by gathering the money that is necessary to bribe the police officer? And so she says she would. So he goes away. She raises the 600 guilders that is necessary. And so he comes back, he takes the money, and she gives it to him. So even though he is a Dutch man, it was a trap. He was a Dutch informant that the Gestapo was using to see if the Ten Boom household was sympathetic to Jewish people. So in February of 1944, Gestapo raided the watch shop and the home. Six people run to the hiding place four Jews, and two underground workers. Corey, her sister Betsy, and her father Casper are arrested. Here's a picture of Corey's bedroom as it looks because the location of the watch shop is now a museum in Holland. And this is Corey in front. And as you can see, they've taken out part of the wall so you can see where the space is. Note the entrance at the bottom panel of the closet that is there. And here's a picture of the outside of the museum, uh, the watch shop. And this picture here, I included this because this was a signal that they would give in the watch shop. There's nothing particular about this, this uh, little sign. It's just for something to do with watchmaking. But if this sign was in the window, then people would know it was safe to come in. And uh, if it wasn't in the window, then they knew that they should stay away. Ten days after 
kept uh, being arrested, Corey's father dies in prison. Here's another picture of the entrance into the room. And here you see a shot of inside the room. So after the raid, six persons um, were in here. They stayed in here for almost 48 hours because the Gestapo put a guard in the house and so they, they had to stand there. They all escaped uh, through a window and the Ten Boom family was responsible for hundreds of Jews and resistors to Jews to escape to a safer location and for resistors to do the work. Corey was honored as a righteous Gentile in Israel. So as I mentioned, 10 days after arrest, Corey's father, Casper, died in custody. He was 84 years old. He had been offered to return home uh, at, the, at the jail and said, if you weren't going to bother anybody else, then, you know, we'd let you go. And he replied, he said he would open his door to anybody else in need. And so they incarcerated him and he never returned home. Corey was placed in solitary confinement for four months. Uh, Corey finds Betsy again because they were separated. They were transported to a German concentration camp in Holland. And then in September of 1944, Corey and Betsy are transported from the concentration camp in Holland to one in Germany. Eighty women are crammed into a boxcar of the train, which is the size for half that number of people and for three days and three nights on the train until they arrive at Ravensbrück concentration camp, which is near Berlin, Germany. And Corey recounts this in her book about them realizing where they are. She says, like a whispered curse, the word passed back through the line. This was the notorious, notorious women's extermination camp whose name we have heard even in Harlem. That squat concrete building that smoke disappearing in the, sun, in the bright sunlight. No, I would not look at it. Betsy and I stumbled down the hill. I felt the Bible thumping between my shoulder blades. God's good news. Was it to this world that he has spoken? In December of that year, Betsy dies in Ravensbrook. She was 59 years old. And in late December, Corey is released. And as she recounts in her book, it was a clerical error that called her prisoner number. A week after she left the prison, all the women her age were exterminated. She talks about, well, in that, in that quote, she talks about the Bible that she had. She had a small Bible that was on a loop, and she would put the loop around her neck, and so the Bible would hang behind her back. I think it's important that we hear from Corey herself. And so here's a clip of her. She's on a TV show called The 700 Club. Uh, this is in the late 70s. Uh, you'll hear phones ringing in the background because it's a call-in for a sponsorship show. And so you'll hear some of that. But I think it's important that we hear some of her experience from, in her words. I was uh, uh, 11 months a prisoner. First four months in solitary confinement, alone yeah. in a cell, and then in a concentration camp in uh, Holland, a yeah. German concentration camp, and then in Ravensbrück, that terrible place north of Berlin. And that's where my sister died. <laughs> 
She died there. Yes. And in that time, God, God somehow kept you sweet and tender towards him. How did you do it? How did you keep from being just terribly despairing? What, what kept you buoyed up at this time? That's good what you have. What kept you? Who kept me up? Who kept you? <laughs> I, I can tell you, I, uh, there are circumstances that you, you cannot uh, do anything. And it was only the Lord who has carried me through. And it is so good that I have experienced that. Mm-hmm. For I had always believed now I know from experience that Jesus' light is stronger than the deepest darkness. Praise God. And a child of God cannot go so deep, always deeper and the everlasting arms that carry you. There was never a time when his grace was not sufficient for you. Indeed, it was always sufficient, but sometimes I, I lost courage. You did? And yes, and I remember that once I said... When I looked on the stars, I said, Oh, Lord, all the stars are in your guidance. But have you forgotten your child, Corrie ten Boom? Mm-hmm. And then, but I had my Bible with me, and that was such a great joy. Huh? And then in the Bible I read that uh, the hairs of our head are numbered, yes. and God has the whole universe in his hands. That means that God has a telescopic and a microscopic interest. The Bible was a forbidden book. How did you get that copy or the copy into the into the concentration camp? That, that was that was an, um, a miracle. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we uh, entered, I had a little Bible, but it was a small Bible, but a whole Bible, mm-hmm. Old and New Testament, and I had it hidden under my under my clothing on my back, mm-hmm. and I saw that they they. Uh, they, we were. Uh, they took away everything what we had hidden, eh? mm-hmm. and I was so scared that I said, "Oh Lord, send your angels, let they surround me." Yes. But then I thought, yes, but angels are, are spirits, and you can look through a spirit, and they, these people may not see me. So I said, "Oh God, uh, let your angels this time not be transparent." <laughs> you can you can pray very unorthodox when you are in great need, but God did it. Mm-hmm. The woman who stood before me was searched, and then my sister who was behind me, and they did not see me. And so I came in the prison with my Bible. So very soon after the war, after Corey opened a rehabilitation home for war victims. And one of the issues that she had to deal with herself and to help others work through were the Dutch citizens who had collaborated with the Germans. In June of 1945, Corey wrote a letter to the man who had betrayed them to the Gestapo and forgives him. And from the time of her release and recovery, the work that God did in Corey's life was a testimony of God's work in her life through horrific circumstances. So if you read The Hiding Place, you see her doubt. You see her frustration, her questions, her struggles. She endured in the midst of her experiences. And this was not an experience where she saw the, the end from the beginning. I mean, we look at the whole package, one story, and we can lose the dailiness of it. We forget the reality of not knowing where the ending would be, so we miss the struggle. Corey began traveling around the world, and so the story of God's light piercing the darkness of evil and the reality of God carrying his children in every circumstance becomes known. She spoke of the power of God's love, and she spoke of the power of forgiveness. She spoke of Jesus being the victor and having unlimited absolute power. 
1977, at the age of 85, she moves to California, and the next year she suffers a series of strokes that left her paralyzed and unable to speak. She died on her 91st birthday, April 15, 1983. Her passing on this date evokes the Jewish traditional belief that states that only specially blessed people are granted the privilege of dying on the date they were born. So I've asked Danae to come and sing us a song. It's one that's familiar. It's called Blessings. And then I just have a few closing comments, observations that we can take away from this story. Thank you, Danae. I'm going to... uh, I had some observations, lessons. I'm out of time. So what I think... One of the more important lessons that I've learned in looking at Corey's life is what do we do when the circumstances of life are not to our liking? And we, we look to get out of the things that we are in too fast and it's not possible to see God in those circumstances. It's not that the road was easy for Corey and for her family She lost her father and her sister in prison camps. Her brother got meningitis when he was in prison and died shortly after the war was over. A lot was taken from her. These two quotes that are up on the screen are ones that she said in the clip that we saw. That Jesus' light is stronger than the deepest darkness. And I don't know if sometimes you think that in your life, the circumstances of life, you've gone so deep that God can't reach you. And the point that she's making here is that always deeper, always deeper are the everlasting arms that carry you. God is there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of Corey's life. Thank you that she was willing to share that story with the world. And that we're able to look at someone who belongs to you and see what it's like to go through horrific circumstances. Looking evil in the face, not knowing when it was going to end, not knowing if it was going to end in life or in death. And yet, afterward, she saw your hand at work. She saw you, Jesus, and she understood that you were victor. So help us this day to remember that you are victorious overall and that you care for us. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Enjoy your day.